Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1935, a single idea changed America. It changed the fabric of society, and it is still a major force in the country, even now. Social security is the president's theme, as in Washington, he discusses the outlook of the individual. When Franklin Roosevelt signed Social Security into law in the summer of 1935, something like half of American seniors lived in poverty. This new program promised to change all of that. Because it has become increasingly difficult for individuals to build their own security single-handed, government must now step in and help them lay the foundation stones. Just as government in the past has helped lay the foundation of business and industry. And the program worked pretty well. Now, instead of about 50% of seniors living in poverty, as they did in the 1930s, well under 10% live in poverty. Elderly poverty used to be really high in this country. The elderly had the highest rates of poverty. And then we created a massive social insurance program to make sure that didn't happen. And as a result, elderly poverty is now much lower than childhood and adult poverty in this country. Melissa Carney is a professor of economics at the University of Maryland, who recently wrote for the Brookings Institution, where she's a senior fellow, about a new idea for the 21st century, Social Security for poor kids. And so the parallel I was making was, If we decided childhood poverty was also a priority, we could have something like a social security system for kids, or we could call it something else if you want. But the point is we could have an insurance program that made sure kids who were born into poverty through no fault of their own had access to social insurance benefits that lifted them out of poverty. We could do that. It's not that expensive. We just need to make it a political and policymaking priority. 60% more kids now live in poverty than senior citizens. 60% more kids. And by the way, seniors are now the least poor group when you look at various age cohorts. Currently, even more kids live in poverty than adults. And that's largely, Carney says, because whole households are classified as poor or not poor. And single moms with kids tend to be overrepresented amongst poor families. The official poverty line for one adult and and two kids is about $21,000 a year, right? So so let's pause on that because could you imagine having to take care of two kids and pay for your housing and your food and all your other expenses for $21,000 a year? That's the official poverty threshold. But, she argues, if we gave poor kids what the average Social Security recipient gets each year, around $17,000, we would nearly stamp out child poverty. Democrats have drafted a mini version of this, a plan to give parents about $300 a month per child, and Republican Senator Mitt Romney has come up with a similar plan. The benefits of cash, Carney notes, are that you don't have to jump through the kind of hoops that you do to get in-kind benefits like housing or food. Studies done on international refugees have found that giving out cash is often most helpful because people's ideas of what other people need, let's say bags of rice, they're often not actually what they need. And so what one person thinks of as helpful isn't always that great for those on the receiving end. Most Social Security recipients probably would rather have money than coupons for food or bags of food. And in some sense, the value of cash is something we're increasingly embracing. Now, here's something that I find a bit ironic, is that right now, 
there's great popular sentiment in favors of something like a universal basic income, right? So UBI mm-hmm. is really uh, popular, especially among, you know, in polls, you see it really popular among people 18 to 34. So okay. here we are having a national conversation about the idea of sending every adult over the age of 18, let's say $10,000 over the course of a year. Mm-hmm. And what are the kinds of arguments people are making in favor of this? Well, it will free people from the burdens of having to take low-wage dead-end jobs. It will free people from the burdens of debt or rent, and it will allow people to make these decisions. I come out pretty strongly against an idea of a universal basic income to everybody because that would be extraordinarily expensive. I mean, if we really gave $10,000 a year guarantee to all adults, that would cost $2.5 trillion. Now, obviously, for higher income adults, some of it would be taxed away. But but if we're just talking about outlays, why aren't we focused on sending checks to the people we know would benefit the most from it, in particular, people with very low levels of income? And really, in particular, we know that children have an extraordinary amount to be gained by not growing up in economically like insecure situations. And so given that there's widespread appeal of this idea of sending all adults checks, again, even if you tax them away for the higher income, could we at least not start by saying, certainly we should agree to send checks to low-income families with children, Um, I mean, there's just so much research now showing how bad poverty is for kids, and it really holds them back over their whole lifetime. So giving money to families with kids, it's not just about spending money now to make somebody's life better. There's a huge social return on that spending. And by that, what I mean is these kids will be able to do better in school. They will be healthier. And so when they're older, they'll be more productive adults, they'll contribute more to the workforce, they'll pay back more in taxes and rely less on government programs. It's just, it's such an obvious way for us to target our spending that it's it's a bit mind boggling that there's not more of an emphasis on that in this country. So tell me how your plan would work. Who would get this social security money? Every kid? Like, what would they get? Explain how it would work. All I propose right now to make the point was to say, if we took the average social security benefit received by a social security recipient age 65 and over, which is a little bit more than $17,000 a year, and we gave that that amount, $17,000 a year, to every kid who's living in poverty. So obviously you'd have to send the check to the family, right? Okay, um, yes. That would cost us $179 billion a year, and it would essentially drive child poverty to close to zero, like less than 1%. Now, you'd never really design a program where there was a cliff such that a family who made $1 more and was above poverty would get zero. That would be a terrible Mm -hmm. design. So like I said, if I, and I probably should do this, but if I were going to take this just thought experiment idea and write it up in a way that we could actually have as a program, you'd want to phase down that money so that okay. families who were making, you know, $23,000 instead of $21,000, they would still get a check. It would just be smaller. When you hear that number, $179 billion, or like, it, it, you, as you said, if you scaled it back, to get rid of childhood poverty, does that seem like a lot of money to you or actually not that much money? Okay. So 
in the context of the kind of numbers that are thrown around in policy and political conversations yes. now, it seems pretty small all of a sudden, mm -hmm. right? Now, the number could be even a lot less, and we could still make a tremendous dent in child poverty. So, for instance, one of the other things I pointed out in this Brookings essay, if we paid each kid living in poverty half the average Social Security benefit, so about $8,500 a year instead of $17,000, then we'd get child poverty down to around 3%. So that would be, you know, half your price tag, $90 billion. Um, and you'd still make a tremendous debt in child poverty. So let's put $80 billion in perspective. $80 billion would get us to 3% child poverty rates. We currently spend $800 billion on social security um, payments, right? I mean, we could roll back some of the tax cuts in the 2017 Tax Act, and we could get $2 trillion over 10 years. Um, you know, right now, people are talking about spending. Granted, it would be a one-time relief if the only people who got relief were current holders of student debt. People are talking about spending a trillion dollars to reduce student debt of people who went to college. So that's not a very well-targeted program, but if, you know, if there's the political will or this idea that we could spend a trillion dollars on that, seems to me we could find $90 billion a year to essentially drive child poverty rates, you know, down to 3%. How about the argument that, you know, look, Social Security is for people who pay into the system and then they kind of get that money back on the other end when they're done with their working life. Kids never contributed anything to the system. Why should they get anything? I, I actually, I mean, I think a lot of people think that way, right? Which mm -hmm. is, hey, I earned my Social Security benefits. Right. And that's why it's such, um, you know, whenever I call it an entitlement program, I, I get hate mail. But, but in our budget, it's an entitlement program, meaning if you qualify, you get it, right? So that's what I mean when I say entitlement, um, which is unrelated to this idea that people feel entitled to the money because they think they paid into the system. Um, I think it's worth making two, two points in reaction to that way of thinking. One, let's take a step back and ask, what is the point of having social insurance? The point of social insurance is to make sure that if there are people in our society who wind up in a bad situation, society takes care of them. So what's the idea of social insurance behind Social Security? It's if people outlive their capacity to work and take care of themselves through their earnings, or if people outlive their savings or their assets, there's a safety net social insurance system there to take care of them. I know that's not the way a lot of people think about social insurance, Social Security. They think they put money into the system and now, you know, it's like their private savings account and they're paying it right. back. It was in the stock market or something, and now it's being paid back. Right, right. But really, it's a social insurance program meant to take care of people who can't take care of themselves. If we, if we take that concept of social insurance seriously, which is why we have disability insurance, which is why we have unemployment insurance, we have no social insurance program like that for kids. So a kid who's born into our very rich society and through no fault of their own finds themselves living with a family that can't adequately take care of their material needs, they have no claim on a social insurance program, nor do we give them any way to say, okay, you know what? We'll spend this money on you now, 
but we want to make sure you pay back into the system later. So later you're going to have to work and pay taxes. Well, in fact, that's what the research evidence suggests will happen. If we take care of kids better, they are more productive as adults. Now we don't give them any sort of contract by which they could do that. And so they're sort of just really out of luck. I mean, in my mind, that's just such a gaping hole in the way you'd structure a safety net for society. Who's more vulnerable than kids who were just born into a situation where their family can't take care of them? And, and we, don't, we don't have provisions for that or for them. Um, I I think it was last year, maybe the end of 2019, I talked to uh, Lawrence Katz, who who oversaw an economist who oversaw this program called Moving to Opportunity uh, as started in the Clinton administration. And they gave vouchers to to poor families to move them into richer neighborhoods. And it looked from the data that he had collected so far, those children are now grown up, but it looked like the increased taxes that those children were paying into the system because they ultimately got better jobs um, would far outstrip the voucher that was paid to get them into the richer neighborhood. Like, i.e., it was a money-making scheme for the federal government, right? They paid a little money to get them into a better house, but they made a lot of money on the back end in taxes. And, and, And what's so interesting about that moving to opportunity experiment and the evidence that's come out of it is that the sort of first... Uh, batch of evidence was really about, okay, we moved these families into better neighborhoods. And the expectation was that the families were going to be less poor and the parents were going to work more. And in fact, the results were disappointing because that's not what we saw. But then when the kids who moved grew up, we saw how much better the kids did. And, And that just, there's a whole bunch of studies like that now that show that when you move kids into better neighborhoods, when you give kids access to health insurance, when you give low-income kids access to high-quality child care, or again, when you give low-income kids access to high-quality early childhood education, they do better not just when they're three and four and not just, you know, when they're seven or eight, but in the long run. And so that's, I mean, that point just bears so much emphasis, which is that it's almost as if you could structure a contract, which is to say, we'll take care of you now, and then you'll be more productive later and kids could say, okay, I will do that, because that's generally mm-hmm. what we see happening. So if you gave families ten or $15,000 a year, you know, uh, if, they're, if they were in poverty uh, per child, would that incentivize poor families to have more children? It's a good, it's, I mean, it's a good question. You know, the short economist answer is going to be on the margin, maybe a few people. I do not expect a huge fertility response. Um, Kids are very expensive. What I expect to see happen is that kids will do better. Um, And even if there's a few people who have a few more kids, that will just that, that won't really swamp the positive effects we'd see by just more material resources going to low-income families and the kids they would have had anyway. Um, you have written that our inability to get kids back to school in September, and, and many kids will soon be hitting a year in, in just a few weeks, right, without any in-person school, you kind of tie that inability to sort of our general... I don't know, sidelining maybe of issues that involve children. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what the last 10 months has told us about ourselves and kids? Yeah, 
it was sort of just watching kids' well-being completely subjugated in the public health, public conversation around how as a country we were going to respond to this pandemic that sort of finally made me write this piece, which is something I've sort of ranted about in my classes, which is we never prioritize kids. And I think that was just on such full display in the pandemic. I mean, back in March and April, when we when we shut down schools, we didn't know what was happening, right? We didn't know if kids were big transmitters of this. We didn't know um, if their risk was really high. But, but back then in the spring, what were we talking about? How are we going to save the restaurants? How are we going to save the bars? What are we going to do for the airlines and the cruise industries? How are we going to protect the elderly? How are we going to protect teachers? All of those things were really important questions. And it was important that we took care of all of those industries and all those groups. But where was the loud voice saying, how are we going to make sure that kids weather this pandemic? And it was, I mean, it should have been a headline, top line priority back in the spring to say, we need to make sure we do everything possible for schools to be equipped to handle kids in the fall. And in large numbers, they weren't doing that. And it wasn't really sort of top line of what we were hearing policymakers talk about, what we were seeing newspapers write about. It was like in August when we started seeing more attention to this, like, oh, shoot, kids aren't going to go back to school. Mm -hmm, well, mm -hmm. it might still be dangerous for kids to go back to school. And where was the, hey, there might be some public health benefit to keeping kids home, but let's on the other side of that Think about the learning loss, the well-being loss, all the kids who don't have safe places to study during the day, all the kids whose parents are still going to go to work as essential workers who don't have you know, safe supervision, who don't have access to internet. I mean, there were so many vulnerable groups of kids who were clearly going to suffer tremendously from this, and it just wasn't a top-line policy priority. And, and that just, I think, is, one, is going to be one of the greatest moral and economic failures coming out of this episode. I want to go back uh, for a minute to your idea of essentially having a social security program for poor kids. And I want to ask you one more thing about it. How do you make sure, or do you just not make sure, um, that the money you send to families, which uh, you know is intended to benefit, let's say, a three-year-old, but clearly not going to be spent by a three-year-old, is not, let's say, spent by somebody in the family who gambles or who drinks? Yeah. So I, I actually think this is an important question. Um, again, I, I, <laughs> I am pretty confident that the majority of parents will make decisions that benefit their kids. But I, I realize that this is a real concern and politically this will be a real concern. So after I put out this article, this essay, I thought a bit about this, which is to say we'd have to condition these benefits on some markers of child well-being. Um, if for no other reason than, than to make a policy like this politically feasible, there, there are cash, like conditional cash programs in developing countries that we could potentially learn a lot from. Um, for example, we could say things like, you know, or, or the benefits could be tied to making sure children had um, an annual or a twice a year well-being checkup with a pediatrician who's sort of certified, yes, this, this child is, you know, not being neglected. This child is being well-nourished. You could have some conditional requirements like that. For children who are school age, you could have some, you know, conditional certification um, that the kids 
like are attending school without high levels of absences, that there aren't um, signs of maltreatment, those kinds of things. There's always a trade-off in designing government programs between making sure the money's being well spent, making sure um, the target population is receiving it, and the administrative burden of mm-hmm. running the program and having these kinds of certifications and checks. Um, so there's, you know, there's a balance in just tying this down as another government bureaucracy, but also making sure sufficient checks are in place that, to your point, children are the main beneficiaries of a program like this. Finally, I just wonder, do you see any political desire um, as we kind of get to know this new administration to, in some sense, expand the Social Security franchise to bring it to children? So, you know, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a reader of political tea leaves, but I will take the point and speculate. So on the one hand, you know, I'm optimistic. We have um an administration coming in in a party that traditionally has made fighting poverty a greater you know, policy priority. And so that makes me optimistic. On the other hand, I've been dismayed by how much of the progressive movement at this moment has been pushed by a desire to expand payments to really less disadvantaged populations. So the progressive push for universal basic income, the progressive push for broad student debt relief, none of this is targeted on the most needy elements of our society. And so it just strikes me as a, as a very curious push for progressives. Um, and I wish that the progressives would be putting their energy into helping the people and the groups that are really most vulnerable And then talk about expanding from there rather than talking about, you know, again, these very large groups of people who would benefit from more government spending, but tend to be less economically needy than children in poverty. Hmm. Melissa Carney is a professor of economics at the University of Maryland. She's also a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Melissa, thanks for being here. Thanks again for having me. On our website, we're going to have Melissa's Social Security for Kids proposal, as well as more information about some of the research that we've talked about, including Cash for Refugees and the Moving to Opportunity study that was started back during the Clinton administration, which tracked what happened to families with kids that were moved out of poorer neighborhoods and into wealthier neighborhoods. That's all at innovationhub.org. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. 